You know, we learned a lot in the recent battle for Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. We learned a lot about where people stand and what they stand for. But most importantly, I think, and certainly most disturbingly to me, we learned how precious little people understand the basic concepts of civil discourse, parliamentary procedure, and the way that a deliberative body, such as the House of Representatives, comes together to discuss things. So let's talk about that a little bit as we have another hazardous conversation. Trigger warning disclaimer. Hazardous Conversations pushes rhetorical boundaries for acceptable political discourse. Listening to this program could have the uncomfortable side effect of provoking deep intellectual inquiry into foundational principles of liberty. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name is Tyler Miller. Happy New Year to everyone. I'm getting uh, this recorded, this first podcast of the year, a little later than I wanted to. In fact, I wanted to get a couple episodes squeezed out before the new year uh, actually hit, but being a family man and a runner of a homestead and all that good stuff, you know, sometimes you have to have your priorities, and I chose mine. So let's talk about what happened with the House speakership, and I really don't want to talk necessarily about the specifics over who was right and and whether or not it was a, a laudable cause and all that stuff. I want to talk more about what it exposed in terms of people's knowledge, just general knowledge of rules of debate, uh, procedures, how Congress functions, how any civil body functions, any deliberative body functions, and the implications that has for how our politics really runs up and down the the system from the local level all the way up to the national level. And this is actually a part that, you know, I don't know if we've talked about it in this podcast yet, but something that's really frustrating to hear people who say, oh, the the uniparty and the two-party system's broken and it's all the same and, you know, party politics can't save us and there's too much partisanship. You know, all the complaints against the system, of which I have many agreements with the complaints. But one of the things that really gets under my skin are when I hear complaints from people who do not actually involve themselves in the process, or they involve themselves so little, and they fail to take time to understand the processes and rules and the way things are done. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not being an apologist here for the idea that the way things are done are the way things should be done. But if you want to break the rules or if you want to change the rules, you got to understand the rules that are already at play. And not only understand the rules that are at play, but understand how they came into play, where they come from, what is are their origins, how have they been developed, how have they been modified. Because just because you don't understand a rule or a procedure, or a method, or anything like that, doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong. Um, There's a lot of people who don't understand our Constitution, for example. And that's because they think it's archaic, because they've been given superficial levels of education, and they don't understand why certain things are there, how intricately and um, thoughtfully 
and deliberatively they were put in place. Things like the Electoral College, things like a bicameral legislature, so on and so forth. They are not just ideas, not just as the radical left would have us believe, you know, these institutions of power to, you know, preserve the patriarchy or vestiges of white supremacy or anything like that. No, they are actually born out of looking at the wealth of human history and of Western tradition, um, and in, so, in some cases even Eastern tradition, looking at the republics of the past, looking at the all governments really of the past and saying what worked and what didn't work and how can we make ours better. And this is just a common... Uh, complaint that i have is that when people start attacking the system they do so so often out of just complete ignorance now i'm not claiming that i have a perfect knowledge no way shape or form i am completely open to learning new and and more better things but um it seems that in this instance i have a better knowledge than a lot of the people that i've engaged with at least in social media now what really got me up in arms about this <clears throat> was a, a little thing I posted on the, the Facebook page talking about, and I, I can't, I don't have it in front of me, but, you know, something along the lines of, hey, all of you Convention of the States people, um, or Convention of States people, um, <clears throat> better pay attention to what's going on in this house battle, because in a Convention of States, it's going to be a thousand times worse, and this got all sorts of interesting replies and remarks, and a lot of people saying, well, no, a convention of states wouldn't be like this, and they really just didn't understand my point. My point is this. Deliberative bodies, and I don't care what they are, I don't care if it's Congress, I don't care if it's a legislature, I don't care if it's a, a church or a corporation, or the Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts or the Sierra Club or whomever it is. A group of people that get together for a purpose, and, and especially if there's money involved, but a pe group of people that get together for a purpose become a deliberative body, and they have to have some sort of formality to the way they conduct their business that gives them an air of legitimacy, both um, in the eyes of people who observe them, um, but very oftentimes also in the eyes of the law. When a group comes together, they decide many things for themselves. For example, they decide if there's going to be a leader, a president, or a chairperson of their body, their organization. They decide if there's going to be someone who's going to keep a record of what they're doing, often called a secretary. They decide that if they're going to handle money in any way shape or form they should probably have a treasurer these are called officers and they are elected by the people who form the body and this is very often the very first thing that gets done in an organization very shortly thereafter they oh and they do that without any rules per se they do that on a consensus of the people that are there and if they get to argue amongst themselves so much about who is what and how things are being done. Well, then they stop being a body, don't they? They dissolve pretty quickly. But if they can get through that part and decide on a, on their officers, um, 
<clears throat> or at least a certain number of them, then they have to move on to establishing some rules. And these rules sometimes are simply copied and pasted from other people who have already developed rules, such as Robert's Rules of Orders, which came from a, uh, I believe, an army major in the late 1800s, an American army major who codified um, and put together his Robert's Rules of Order. Um, and those are still in, in print edition. Um, they're updated. There's whole societies around that. There's various parliamentary procedures um, that have been developed over the centuries. And you should really look into the history of parliamentary procedure to understand not only why it developed and how it developed, but how it then influenced the American system, how it um, imbued itself into English common law and the British system of politics and parliamentary procedure and rules and how that translated into the colonists who based their charters, their colonial charters and their state charters and then later their state constitutions and their legislatures and their courts and then the Continental Congress and the Articles of Confederation and then the Constitution. All of these things flowed one from the other. And you cannot understand the more modern document without understanding the origins and how that philosophy and methodology and approach came into the minds and was understood by the people who wrote our Constitution. So you adopt rules as an organization. There's no one who tells you what those rules have to be. The body gets to decide what those rules are going to be. Very oftentimes, those are rules of debate. What are proper motions? What are not proper motions? What are privileged motions? What are a correct order of business? What are out of order actions or motions? Who's a member? Very often is decided. Sometimes they codify in tandem with a set of rules, a set of bylaws, or even a constitution, organizational constitution that has basic framework structure. And then the body has to adhere to that or at least adhere to the methods of changing that if they want to. But the point is, when the body first comes together, there is nothing that dictates to that body how it can govern itself, how it can proceed to administrate itself. The only exception, and I maybe should say the distinction, is... If it's an organization or body that is subservient to another body, for example, a committee of Congress of the House of Representatives is not, cannot usurp the power of the entire House of Representatives. It is a subset of that larger group. But within its own committee, within itself, it gets to decide things like who is the chairperson? Who are the ranking members? What are the rules of this committee? And those rules do not have to conform to anything other than what the members of that committee decide they have to conform to. Unless higher rules from the House of Representatives directly say they can't do something. Same thing with the Constitution. The Constitution is the same idea. The states, even though the states are sovereign and are 
in some ways, some respects, superior to the federal government in their sovereignty, I guess would be the best way to put it. There are certain things that the states cannot do that are reserved for the federal government to do, and vice versa. There are certain things that the federal government explicitly cannot do that are reserved for the states, and that's our federal system. Now, what is all this, what is all this rambling on about? The Convention of States, Article 5 of the Constitution, and uh, let's read Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution, and just in case anyone doesn't understand what I'm talking about here, Okay, Article 5 discusses the amendment process, okay? And it says, The Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution, or, on the application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the several states, shall call a convention for proposing amendments which, in either case, shall be valid to all intents and purposes as part of this Constitution when ratified, by the legislatures of three-fourths of the several states, or by conventions in three-fourths thereof, as the one or other mode of ratification may be proposed by the Congress. And then it goes on, to, the second half of that goes on to talk about they can't get rid of the three-fifths compromise before the year 1808. And the other provision is that, that no state can be def- Deprived of its equal representation in the Senate without its own consent. So, two methods of, of getting amendments. People who are listening to this podcast probably already know this, so I'm sorry if I'm insulting your intelligence by explaining this to you. But, two methods. Congress, and this is the method that's always been used. Congress proposes an amendment. They debate it. Two-thirds of each house pass it. It goes to the states. Three-fourths of the states ratify it. It becomes an amendment, part of the Constitution, full and force. The other method, the one that has a lot of controversy, but also a lot of momentum, the so-called Convention of States. The reason there's a lot of controversy is because it's never been done before. It's never been employed. And as such, no one really can say with 100% certainty how it would go. Yes, I'm aware there is an organization, conventionofstates.com, that or .org, or whatever they are, uh, that is out there, and they're behind the big push to get a convention of states called for a very limited purpose, and I understand that. However, my contention is that the idea of a limited convention of states is hogwash. And here's why. Like I just said, any deliberative body, unless it is explicitly subservient to a higher body, is completely in control of its own administration. A convention, if called, would be a distinct deliberative body. It would not be a committee of Congress. It would not be a committee of any one state. It would not be a alternative Congress or anything like that. It would be its own separate entity called for the very specific purpose of a convention for the purpose of proposing amendments to the Constitution. That's the purpose. Any extra you you try to constrain that purpose by saying only amendments that talk about budget or only amendments that talk about term limits or only amendments that talk about taxes or only... That is... That's just flowery rhetoric, okay? It's, it is extra-constitutional if not downright unconstitutional. The states cannot add 
a requirement or a restriction to a constitutional provision that the Constitution does not explicitly allow for. And here's the comparative. Term limits. When it was tried years ago by some states to impose term limits on its congressional representatives, it got slapped down by the Supreme Court. Why did it get slapped down by the Supreme Court? There's nothing in there that says that the states can't create term limits. What the court said is that while there is nothing explicitly barring the idea of term limits, the Constitution sets out the requirements for being a representative of Congress. Further, the Constitution explicitly states that that Congress basically gets to decide its own membership. So, any legislation that adds to those requirements or modifies the requirements that the Constitution already lays out are unconstitutional. The exact same thing is true with a Article 5 Convention of States. The article simply says that upon the application of the legislatures, Congress shall issue a call for a convention. Once two-thirds of the legislature. So, currently, two-thirds is 34 states. I've been having a exhausting debate with a friend of mine, a very dear friend of mine that I met through other political activisms on another constitutional issue, and he is so solid on that issue. And it grieves me so much that he is so wrong on this issue. Um, when it comes to the idea that the states can add restrictions on the scope of that convention that the Constitution explicitly says, no, you can't. Um, it The convention takes place and the delegates to that convention get to decide what the scope of that convention, what amendments are proposed. You could propose amendments to eliminate the Electoral College. You could propose amendments to rewrite the Second Amendment. You could propose amendments to completely replace the entire Constitution. That is a, a proper in-order amendment according to basic fundamental parliamentary procedures. Of course, all that is dependent on what rules the delegates adopt at the convention. And again, you cannot impose those rules from outside of the delegates. The delegates get to decide what the rules are. If they decide that a simple majority is all that's required to adopt or propose, um, uh, adopt any proposed amendment and send that on to the states for ratification, then a simple majority is all it requires. If they decide that a supermajority, a two-thirds, or even a three-fourths majority is required, then that is the threshold that must be attained because they get to decide that. They have that power. Why do they have that power? That's not in the Constitution. That's not in any legislation that I see anywhere. They have that power because that forms the fundamental basis of all Western civil deliberative discourse in human history. That very idea that a group that gets together gets to control themselves free of influence from outside political bodies is the nucleus of thought of our entire American experiment. It is the revolutionary idea at its core that a group of people, common and plain as a piece of grass, can get together and as a group decide we're going to do something. 
And because we're free men and women under God, we have the right to do this. If we deny that, even in an Article 5 setting, if we deny that, then we destroy the very foundation, ideological foundation, of the Declaration of Independence. We destroy the entire basis of our political philosophy in this country. Whether you're left or right, doesn't matter. If you've ever loved America and believe in America, this is so important. Now, if all you care about is getting your way, and if all you care about is winning, then it's very easy to set these issues aside and set these ideas aside. I can't do that. I can't set aside centuries, even millennia, worth of philosophical thought and practice, trial and error. I can't set that aside. I can't simply put it you know, in a box because things are so bad. Now, am I opposed to an Article 5 convention? I have been very much opposed to it in the past for these very reasons. Because I believe there's nothing that can constrain it. I haven't even gotten into the historical justifications of why I'm opposed to this in so far as what the Article 5 convention is. I've just been talking about philosophical history. Okay? I am, I have always been opposed because I believe there is, once it is Pandora's box, once it is let loose, there is nothing that can constrain it. Yes, the states are there as a backstop because if they don't ratify, you know, whatever the convention produces, what if they don't, if the states don't ratify it, it doesn't happen. But I look at the woeful amount of constitutional, historical, civic ineptitude that exists in our society. And I've never wanted to gamble what we have, even on the payoff of getting it restored to its proper function. I have since, and I think I've mentioned this before, I have since done a 180 on that. I now believe that it is absolutely necessary to try a convention of the states because it is also my firm conviction that if we do not we will end up in a hot civil war. If we do not make this what I would call a last-ditch effort at politics, at a political solution of some sort, we are destined to bloodshed. I'm not saying that it would completely avert bloodshed. I'm not saying that it would completely forestall it, because honestly, I think that either way, we may have that in our future. Um, the left is a virus that cannot be content to stay where it's at. It must grow or it dies. And so it, it cannot be content with letting people go their own way. Because as long as there's examples of people living free, they can't, they have a difficult time holding on to their repressive regimes. Um, why do you think North Korea you know, is, is so tightly controlled. They don't, they cannot afford to let their people see that there's anything outside of it. The only way, the only reason China manages to balance it for so long is sheer numbers, sheer numbers and sheer brutality. So I am embracive of an article five convention, but what I cannot, and I will not go along with is this pie in the sky nonsense of what people think this convention is going to be it is not going to be limited it's not going to be civil just for example 
do you think that for a moment, if, if I think we're at what, 19 states, uh, you can go to conventionstates.com, I think, and, and see this, what the current number is, but we're at 19 states that have passed some sort of resolution calling for a convention of states. And if we get to 34 states, do you think that for a moment the left won't meet? Well, first of all, they'll have an absolute panic attack. I'm sure there'll be some sort of lawsuit to try to stop it. Um, some sort of theatrics along those lines. But they are going to pivot in a heartbeat, in half of a heartbeat, to making sure that if this convention happens, that they dominate it. They're going to get the Soros money machine out, and they're going to start vilifying it. They're going to start persuading people. Um, they're going to start recruiting people to be delegates. They are going to go into overdrive to make sure that if they can't even dominate it, that at the very least, they'll be able to temper it, temper whatever effects could it could produce. Do you, do you really think that won't happen? Do you really think the left is just going to be like, oh, well, they got a convention of states. We're screwed. Do you think that really? Come on. So this notion, this idea that it's going to be constrained, that it's going to be civil, is absolute nonsense. It is just absolute hogwash. And my case in point is our own history. The 1787 Constitutional Convention. It was called with a very express purpose. It was to be limited to the express purpose of proposing amendments to the Articles of Confederation. Additionally, it was to report whatever amendments and proposals they had, not only to the states, but back to Congress. Not necessarily for approval, but report back. And the idea probably was to, you know, let Congress look at it and debate it. And if Congress took those up under the Articles of Confederation and adopted them, well, hey, that's that was the process. That was... That was, in effect, the Constitution at the moment. They didn't do that. As soon as they got together, and even beforehand, several delegates, they went into this knowing that they were going to scrap the Articles of Confederation. They went into it with the plan to completely replace it. It took all summer for them to actually do it um, and get something down on paper because... Several of the states, New York included, um, would not uh, support even talking about replacing the Articles of Confederation because they knew that exceeded the convention's constraints, the constraints that were placed on it by Congress. In fact, the entire New York delegation, I think I've talked about this before, the entire New York delegation, minus Alexander Hamilton, left in protest over this fact. That didn't mean New York was unrepresented. Hamilton stayed. Hamilton defied his legislature. Now, eventually, several of these delegates were in communication with members of their legislature or governors, and they got permission to debate it and discuss it and talk about it and eventually you know they produced the constitution and they even got permission to sign their names to it because there was such dissatisfaction with the articles of confederation there was such discord and turmoil and things were just not working out well there was such a disaffectation with the articles of confederation that people all up and down from governors and legislatures down to the common person was like i don't care if they broke the rules what we got ain't working and for better or worse 
we have a lot of that sentiment today. For better or worse, we have a lot of sentiment of what we have isn't working. Now, there's lots of motivations, different motivations for people saying that. But that sentiment pervades. And because it pervades, people are willing to entertain extra constitutional measures in order to get what they perceive as the right outcome. And that, my friends, is a very dangerous place to be. Because the rule of law no longer applies in such situations. You have shifted your mindset from wanting something good to embracing or at least being willing to willing to entertain tyrannical measures. I'd like to all invite you all to um, watch the movie Cromwell sometime if you haven't. It's a it's an older movie. <clears throat> it's got Richard Harris in it. Uh, you may know him as the Emperor from Gladiator or Dumbledore from the first two Harry Potter movies, among other movies. Um, very famous actor, very good actor. Um, he plays Oliver Crom- Cromwell, and it's a very, I don't want to say biased, but it it does portray Cromwell in a, in a favorable light, and King Charles in a less than favorable light. But it does, in, in my view, attempt to uh, portray the realities of the English Civil War, um, which happened about 130 years before the American Revolution, Fairly accurately. Oh, Alec Guinness, Obi-Wan, uh, from the original stars. He's, he's Charles, King Charles I. But it shows Cromwell's evolution on, um, well, I don't want to spoil it. It, I, I really recommend it. It's, it's a little bit of a slow movie, but if this kind of stuff, um, piques your interest at all, I think you'll find it a very illuminating one. Um, especially when we're talking about revolutionary politics, about um, the idea of, well, what do we do when we have a tyrant? Or what do we do when we have a system that's not working the way it should? And what are we willing to do? And I think that's that's the part that I really want to ask everyone to consider. What are we willing to do in order to get things running the way that we think they should? Because I think we're very we're very far down that line. And I don't like how far down that line we've already come or how far down I think we're going to ultimately end up going. I've got a lot more to say on this subject. Um, (laughs) And there's a lot more uh, detail and grist to get into about it. But at the very minimum, test me on the things that I've said. Um, Look at history. Look at the history of um, parliament, parliamentary procedure, how it was developed, the, t- the idea of civil bodies, of deliberative bodies, of rules of debate, of procedure. Dive into that subject because it forms the nucleus for how we got all of our philosophies, all of our political understandings, and really digest how things developed. And why they developed. Why things not only are the way that they are. But how they got that way. Um, And what was tried and discarded. What's um, very much like the the Pilgrims. the, The Mayflower Compact. What was tried and discovered 
this doesn't work. We got to pivot to something else. That happens in philosophy, in politics, just as much as it happens in anything else in economics or any other realm of life. So I'm sure this is going to come up again. Um, I certainly not have said everything that I could say on the subject, but I'm going to try to leave it there for the time being because we are still a ways away from having enough states to get that convention called. And like I said, I am very much for it now because I believe it is our last best hope. I just want people going into it with a good understanding of what it's going to be and that it is going to be a dogfight. It is going to be the political dogfight of our lives. And it could very well be the spark that ignites the powder keg um, that devolves us into complete disunion. And on that happy note, (laughs) I am going to invite everyone to like the podcast, rate the podcast. I hope you are enjoying the podcast. And hopefully I'll get on more of a regular schedule in this new year. Um, I've got some travel coming up from work, but I plan on taking the equipment with me so that I can continue to record in my hotel room. And yeah, I think that's it. God be with you all in all that you do. And remember, keep the faith and keep up the fight.